Everyone, I'd like to welcome you again. This is a, a lecture in our series for the, Christ, for the uh, Institute for Christian Worship here at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Our guest is Kevin Twitt uh, and members of the band Indelible Grace from Nashville. Uh, these men have played a significant role in the resurgence of hymn singing on campuses, in, uh, in uh, churches that are um, reaching out to a broad variety of, of men and women and children. Uh, we're picking up right where we left off on the previous lecture, and then today at 1.30 we'll be involved in seeing how uh, these hymns can engage the emerging church. Tonight at 7.30 is the full concert with Indelible Grace in, in Alumni Chapel. Let, help me welcome Kevin Twitt. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let me... Um say a couple things that aren't on the outline, just I want to make sure I don't forget these. Um, a comment was made to me after the lectures yesterday, perhaps I should say something about what do I mean by a hymn. And I think Chip even made mention of that. When I'm thinking of a hymn, and I'm talking about a hymn in the lecture yesterday and the lecture today, I'm thinking of the hymn as a literary form uh, rather than a musical form. I know a lot of people, when they think about hymns, they think about a certain style of music. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I I think there are some, some good um, traditional hymn tunes, certainly, and we use a lot of those in our ministry, um, as well as writing new hymn tunes. But the things I'm talking about, about the hymns, I'm really discussing them as a literary genre, as a text, okay? The other thing I want to say is, uh, just make sure we're all on the same page about what, what do I actually mean by hymn as, uh, as a genre? How is that different from a gospel song uh, and from a praise chorus? And I think Brian Wren, in his book Praying Twice, has an excellent discussion of this, I don't agree with everything in that book, but there's excellent discussion of the different genres of congregational song, as well as how music works and um, sort of psychologically and physiologically, all these things. It's a really helpful book. I commend it to you with strong reservations about some of the things in that book. Any of you know about that book, you'll know why I'd have strong reservations. But um, he talks about, about hymns. Hymns generally have... Um, a certain number of lines that are repeated sort of structurally versus, you know, often four lines in a verse and it'll have a number of verses. They don't have a refrain or a chorus. As far as the development of thought, it starts somewhere and it progresses and ends somewhere. Um, it, sometimes the progression is along um, Trinitarian lines. Sometimes it's on um, chronological Terms, you know, here's how this truth starts and how we see it developing through the Bible or through a believer's life or experience. Um, but that, that's sort of key to understanding a hymn is that it's this literary genre where the, where the, the stanzas repeat, but the, uh, the thought develops. The gospel songs arise in the Moody Sankey revival period. They are, they're really designed for large groups where they don't always have hymnals. And so um, these would be songs like the Solid Rock where they'll have a refrain. Um, that can be sung by everybody, but then if you don't have hymnals, then the soloist could sing the verses. Um, some of them are really wonderful. I love Solid Rock. We do that one all the time, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. But it's not technically a hymn. Um, rather than a, a real clear development of thought in the verses, there's more looking at the same thing from different perspectives. But there's more repetition of thought, um, but it's... In, in different ways, saying the same thing in different ways. And then you kind of come back to a central thought in the chorus. Uh, and then there's the gospel so or the praise choruses, which tend to be shorter. Uh, and they tend to be, I, I always think of it this way, you know, like 
if, if the hymn is like a story, then the, the praise chorus is like a quick, kind of a quick image. And so, sometimes, often, it's a really beautiful image. It's really well done and thought, thought out. And it may repay sitting and looking at that image for a while. But there's not really progression of thought in it. And like I said yesterday, a lot of song leaders that are using almost exclusively praise choruses will string choruses together the way they'll sing one after another. They're developing, um, a, you're taking you on a journey. There's a lot of talk about worship flow and taking people on a journey. Um, so, so you see them doing somewhat what the hymns already do, and I'd say what the psalms do, too, as far as that journey aspect. Though not all the psalms do that. There are short little psalms that, that don't necessarily take you on a big, long journey. So well, all of those things are appropriate in congregational worship. Um, I, what I'm trying to get at is not to say you should quit singing praise choruses and only sing hymns. What I'm, what, I guess the burden of what I'm trying to get at is there are a lot of things that we can learn from the hymns. We should retain the hymns. I think they're wonderful for lots of various reasons. But I also think that we can even write better praise choruses by learning how the hymns work, how they do what they do. When I was in, in college, at Berkeley College of Music, studying jazz, you know, the, the, way you, the way you learn to play jazz is by studying the masters. You know, they, yeah, they, you know, there are a lot of people that think that they can teach you, you know, how to use this scale over these chords. But really, the best way to learn to play jazz is to listen to lots of jazz. Uh, and uh, initially, when you're trying to learn jazz, you're going to eventually sound very much like the people you're listening to. But eventually, that gets into your heart and soul, and then your own style can emerge. There's sort of this kind of music school phenomenon that often happens where the first couple, you know, people go into school with their own style and they come out sounding like everybody else. But hopefully a couple years down the road, you're a better musician for the experience and your style has started to come back. I, I, I think something like that, um, I would love to see more of that happening with people who are writing contemporary choruses and contemporary worship songs. And they're not all choruses. We have Stuart Town and, and, you know, Keith Getty, who you had here. You've got a lot of people writing more substantive modern choruses. And Brian McLaren, if you've ever read his open letter to um, worship leaders, it was in Worship Leader magazine, uh, or open letter to songwriters, I think it is, has some points about um, helping that, that movement, can, you know, grow up in some ways. And I've, I've seen that in my years since I've been thinking about hymns and choruses. I've seen growth. Um, and I, I think there could be more growth even from understanding how the hymns work and why they do what they do. If, if, the same way that you understand why does West Montgomery choose this note versus that note? Why does it work this way? Why does Miles play this over, over this chord? Uh, how does that work? That's, that's some of what I'm trying to do um, today. So by way of introduction, uh, consider that disclaimer and introduction kind of stuff. Let's talk about the outline again. I think the point I ended on yesterday was, um, I guess it's the second point. It's under Roman numeral three, the part about hymns broaden our range of metaphors. You see that's about halfway down the page. Yeah, Chip's got some outlines if you, if you don't have one. Uh, I want to make talk about hymns are great art. So another, another reason that I think um, hymns can teach us a lot and why we need them in the, in the modern church that we're a part of is we really, I think, are, are coming to understand that the gospel itself is a creative story, the greatest story ever told, that there is um, artistic skill evidenced in the scriptures. Uh, and the, the hymns can really engage us as great art. Um, it, it, and it is tricky to write a good hymn. Uh, a number of, number of hymn writers talk. It's very interesting how very few excellent poets are also excellent hymn writers. Two that I know are William Cooper and James Montgomery. And both of them 
uh, talk about this, this problem and particularly want to bring the level of their poetry down a bit for a hymn. Because a hymn, this is what James Montgomery says. He's got a little paper uh, on the traits of a good hymn, which is, is worth searching out. It's really, really interesting. But he says a hymn should grab you right away. You should be able to understand it as you sing it, what it's talking about. And yet, as you continue to sing it and think upon it, it should repay that effort. In other words, at, at the an initial reading and singing, you get what it's saying, but the more you sing it, it continues to uh, enrich your soul. That's hard to do. And a lot of great poets are a little too obtuse, and you don't quite get what they're saying right off. I, I find this with Frederick Faber's hymns a lot. Sometimes they're a little difficult to understand exactly what he's saying. They're almost too poetic and, and, um, and abstract. Uh, but, but a good hymn is hard to do, and, and it takes great skill. And if, boy, if, if I was qualified, you know, to, I heard Bruce Hindmarsh one time. He's a, one of the world's experts on John Newton, and he came to a conference we did in, in Nashville and sort of went through a literary analysis of When I Survey the Wonders Cross, just showing the way he, you know, the, sort of the poetic devices that he uses. It's amazing. Just amazing skill. And I, I think we could learn from that. And I, but I also think the hymns engage us because they are creative. They are, uh, they're using images and metaphors, and they are, they're artistic. And, um, and these sorts of approaches are becoming more and more important in a postmodern world where art kind of sneaks in the back door and grab, kind of grabs a hold of you. The hymns do that. Uh, I think it's an important thing for our ministry of the coming generations. Kevin Ford, who is writing a book about reaching postmodern youth, says this. How will you reach this postmodern generation? A generation that cannot conceive of objective truth, cannot follow your linear arguments, cannot tolerate anything, including evangelism, that smacks of religious intolerance. And art is often a good first step. I, I, would, I would argue that if we want to be true to the, to the Bible, we have to get to linear argument. There's a place for it, but that's... That's more for next hour's lecture. We'll talk about that. Um, so hymns are great art. Hymns remind us as well that the church is bigger than the people we know and the people who are alive today. And that's, that's vital. Through hymns, we can connect with believers who live centuries before us. We can have mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. That's a line from the church's one foundation. Speaking of this phenomenon the book of Hebrews talks about, about when we come into worship, we actually come into the presence of those saints who have went before us and the angels, and they're all worshiping um, God even now. And there's a mystic, sweet communion that we have with them. I can't explain that to you, but I can tell you that through the hymn tradition and through liturgy, there's a lot of ways that you can get at that. But it's important that our local congregations understand that we have a certain local indigenous culture. God has put us in a particular time and place, and that's, that's good. And we shouldn't be afraid of that or deny that. Yet, we are connected to something that's bigger than ourselves. People ask me sometimes, you know, what do you think about keeping thee and thou and all, those, all that kind of archaic language? And I think there's a place for that. Because when you sing these and thous in hymns, it helps remind you that the church is made up of people who don't talk like us. Now, you can do that by reaching across cultures. And there's certainly a movement in, in a lot of uh, worship today to try to involve world, word cultures. And I think that's, that can be helpful. But you can also reach back over the centuries. Because the church is bigger than you, both broad and backwards and forward, right? And, and we need that. I think it's important that we are teaching our people and even modeling for our people in the songs that we sing that the church is not just an expression of this one little homogenous group. And it's hard to do that. Uh, Marva Dawn, at one point in the lecture I heard, she said, 
Um, if our churches really are going to reflect the diversity of the body of Christ that they should, then that means everybody has to sing songs they don't like. I think that would be such a great approach to have when people come to your church that they just expect that they're going to sing songs they don't like. Because the church is bigger than just one set of cultural preferences. The hymns help us with that. Um, when I introduce people to Ann Steele's hymns, and um, if you're interested in Ann Steele, more you can hear online the lecture I did last night at Clifton Baptist on Ann Steele. But, I, you know, Ann Steele is this lady who lived 250 years ago in a little English village. And I introduce people to hymns of hers like Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul. And people read that and sing that and say, that's my experience. I've never been able to say that in worship before. I didn't think we were allowed to say, Dear, you know, that I have a weary soul or that I have a, a fainting hope or that I'm having trouble even holding on. But when, when people say, wow, this lady who lived 250 years ago in a little English village felt the same things. For them, the, the, the gospel becomes so much bigger. The kingdom becomes so much bigger. My friend Chris Miner, he's, he's a fascinating guy. He's written a lot of the, the favorite tunes that we use in RUF circles um, for, for some of these hymns. And we've done a lot of his arrangements on our Indelible Grace CDs. Um, he's, he's really fascinating because he's a guy who grew up in a privileged setting in Jackson, Mississippi as a white white upper-middle-class kid going to Jackson Prep. Um, and yet, his last project, he was um, exploring a lot of slave songs because he was really, you know, he's an artist, a photographer, and really a, a video artist. Um, for him, he said, for me, it's sort of a verica- verification test of the gospel. Can I resonate with the experience of, of slaves um, who, you know, suppose, you know, understand God and have a relationship with him, can I, do I have a similar experience? Or is the gospel just something that comes out of my cultural, upper-middle-class, white, southern upbringing? And for him, he finds I really, he really wants to explore these slave songs, and, and even putting them to new music is a way that he's trying to say, can I try these on, and do they fit? It's fascinating to think about that. I think that it is one of the ways that we can answer the charge that Christianity is just a product of our culture. It's not. It's not just a product of the Western culture. Certainly, it's gained a lot of baggage from Western culture, but it's actually an Eastern, you know, Middle Eastern religion. Um, the church is bigger than our culture, and I think the hymn tradition can help us with that. Um, the hymn tradition, um, in, you know, one of the best sort of ecumenical books that you will most likely have in your library is a good hymnal. Drawing from people across denominations, people that you would probably not agree with on so many points, and yet you can come together over this issue. Mark Knoll has a, has a wonderful lecture he did up at Harvard um, on, on really the way to understand the heart of what evangelicalism is, is to look at sort of the, the common theology we have in the hymns. And I think it's fascinating. A friend of mine who was doing RUF down at Harvard was asked to speak recently. Um, I, I guess it was, you know, kind of, I, oh, it was about around the passion. When the passion, the movie came out, there was a lot of debate about you know, anti-Semitism, and Harvard Divinity School has a Jewish New Testament professor. Um, and so she was part of this panel and asked my friend Brian Habig to be part of this uh, panel to talk about the cross and the movie The Passion and anti-Semitism. And his approach, I thought, was a, was a good approach. He said, how do we want to understand what evangelicals believe about the cross? Let's look at stricken, smitten, and afflicted, this hymn. And particularly the idea that the cruelest stroke was the stroke that justice Gave and, and understanding, yeah, the movie picks out a lot about the, the sort of the physical sufferings, but it does it really, you know, confess what evangelicals have always thought is the, the heart of what's going on at the cross, which is the, the separation of the father from the son 
Um, but I, I liked how if he wants to speak about what evangelicalism as a whole has to say, he's going to go to a hymn. I, th- I think that's really, really interesting and helpful and maybe something that you might find useful as well. Um, it's also one of the reasons I think that studying stories behind the hymn writers is really helpful and sharing them with our people. Somebody asked me last night, you know, how do you do that without destroying the worship flow? My general practice is to pick either one hymn story or a little brief vignette of the hymn writer or explanation of a line or an obscure phrase in a hymn per service. But my understanding as well is I'm going to pick 30 or 40 hymns over the course of a year that I want my students to get into their heart and soul. I don't want to necessarily sing all new songs every week. I also want to sing more than a half dozen hymns. Uh, I want to, but I want to have a reasonable number. And therefore, if I explain, you know, say one thing about one hymn at a service over the course of a whole school year, I will have said something about most of those hymns. I, I may say something about we dare not trust the, I dare not trust the sweetest frame from Solid Rock because nobody knows what that means. And they need to know what that means. A frame is an emotional state. And what we're singing when we're singing that, what we're saying is I don't trust even my feelings when I feel good. A lot of people need to know that because I deal with college students who are trying to get back to an experience they had at junior high camp, which they think is sort of the ultimate um, sort of goal of the Christian life. In reality, if you believe people like John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace and How Sweet the Name Jesus Sounds, he would say living on your frames is a state of immaturity. And I think the modern church can learn a lot um, about that. So I always explain that line or Ebenezer. I think that's an important concept. You could change that word, but I'd rather explain it to somebody. Okay. Um, hymns focus us on God's promises more than upon ours. And this is, I, I, I really like to emphasize this point because this is at the heart of the gospel. That we grow by feeding on God's character revealed and by feasting on his promises. This is Galatians 3 and 4. And I, I mentioned this yesterday, I'm sure, about the difference between a law agreement and a promise agreement. The gospel is described as a promise Or God says, I will do this. You see this so clearly in the covenant with Abraham, right? Where God says to Abraham, I'm going to show you what my love is like. Take these animals, cut them in half, spread the pieces apart. And Abraham says, oh, I understand this. This is is something that we do in our culture when we're going to make agreements. We're going to cut the pieces of the animals apart. We're going to spread them apart. Then we're going to walk hand in hand. And that way we're going to, you know, seal a covenant uh, or cut a covenant and yet what God does is after Abram does that, and he has to drive the birds away so that they won't you know, eat at the, the dead animal pieces, then God puts Abram into a deep sleep and passes through the pieces by himself. The, the heart of the covenant is it's dependent upon God's faithfulness and his sovereign grace. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as many promises as God has made, they are all yea and amen in Christ. And as a Presbyterian, my understanding of the sacraments and the word and all what we call the means of grace is they all are about exhibiting to us Christ and we feed on him by faith. And I think the hymns help us do that because they don't just tell us about Jesus. So often they are gazing upon Jesus and helping us do that. They help us focus on God's promises rather than our own will and our promises. Now, there's a place for making vows to God. But a constant diet of, Lord, I just want to do this. Lord, I promise to do this. Lord, I'm going to do this. I I think it will leave you in a perpetual state of immaturity. The way our faith grows is by feeding on the promises of God. And in our worship services, is that what people get from the prayers, 
from the sermons, um, from the songs, um, the corporate readings, whatever it is that we're doing, should all be about emphasizing that point. And it's an important point, and I think it's one that's often not understood very well. And there's so many verses. I could, I could point to uh, 1 John 4.16, which says that we know and rely on God's love for us. That's a paradigm shift for most evangelicals, I'm afraid to say. Mo- most people think that, you know, we're bas- basically trying to stay fired up for Jesus. A lot of worship services are pep rallies, right? This was my understanding in high school. I remember very specifically saying, well, I've got church on Sunday, and then I have this parachurch ministry that I'm part of on Wednesday. And I need to find a Bible study around about Friday afternoon because I need to get recharged. Because my understanding was the purpose of church and Bible study is to get me charged so, so that I can sort of sustain my love for Christ for a couple days. But it only lasts a couple days, so I need another, another service. It's so different than understanding that I rely not on my zeal, not on my love for God, but on God's love for me. That's what First John is saying. And Augustus Toplady course, is bringing this out in his classic hymn, A Rock of Ages, which was originally titled, A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. I like that title. A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. He wrote it in the midst of a doctrinal fight with John Wesley. And you can look up that story. It's easily uh, available. But he, um, he basically wrote this crazy article. Wesley had written an article about how Calvinists rejoice in babies burning in hell and assigned it Augustus Toplady and published it in this magazine. And then Toplady turned around and attacked Wesley's idea of Christian perfectionism by saying, you know, calculating how many sins a believer will commit in his lifetime. And it was 600-some thousand. And then at the end, he attached this hymn, Rock of Ages, and entitled A Living and Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. Forget the article, because it's insane. But the, um, but the point of the hymn which is interesting how quickly the Methodists adopted it and put it in their hymnal. But um, the point of the hymn is, no matter how well you've served God, no matter how much you've wept over your sin, all for sin could not atone. Right? Could my zeal, no respite, no. That means, could I stay fired up for Jesus all the time? Could my tears forever flow? Even if you could weep over your sin the way you should, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. He says, that's the prayer you need to come to faith. That's the prayer you need to live by faith. That's the prayer you need on your deathbed. And so that, that's important. I think a lot of the hymns do, do a good job in doing that. And I, I think that in some ways our, our church is still kind of mired in sort of a will-driven religion. Um, and, and it's understandable because our culture, one of the dominant messages of our advertising culture, is that you are what you are by what you choose. The way you define yourself is by what you choose to buy, what you choose to align yourself with. It's pretty difficult to speak about the sovereign grace of God in election in that context. Do you realize that? Um, And yet, I, I agree with Spurgeon that every true Christian knows in their heart of hearts that they didn't choose God. He chose them. And I think the hymns do a good job of bringing that out, even with people who will say they don't believe that. I mean, it's always interesting to read some of the things Charles Wesley writes in his hymns. Um, compared to the theology that he would say he confessed, much stronger on God's sovereign grace and God's promises being our hope, uh, on God's light diffusing a quickening ray, sending a life-giving ray to somebody who's dead, and then can it be? That's, that's not exactly the theology he confesses, but I'm glad that he's inconsistent um, because his hymn is better than, than, than the way he confessed sometimes. Um, let's see, where are we at here? Okay, they, they help us... Um, Focus on God's promises more than mine. Um, Point four. 
why hymns are so important for the contemporary church. Hymns remind us that we can only approach God through the shed blood of Jesus. And I know if you have Chip for your professor that you hear this a lot, but I'm going to emphasize the point. First um, Peter 2.5 says that it's, Christ, it's through Christ that our spiritual sacrifices are made acceptable. And I think if people don't go away from our worship service with that clearly in mind, we failed. It's very important that, w- that we understand that. And I'll tell you, in, in a lot of choruses, I'm amazed at how little the gospel is there. Really? Um, there's mentions of the cross, but it's not unpacked and gazed upon as it is in the hymns. I think we can learn from the hymn writers about the centrality of the cross of Christ um, and, and how important it is to unpack that and to consider it and to ponder it. The hymns do that well. The major theme in a lot of choruses, and there have been a number of people who've done studies and have written about this. I'm not on, on too thin of ice when I say this. You know, if you survey the top 25 CCL, CCLI songs that our friend Lester Ruth has done, you'll find a very disturbing lack of Trinitarian language. You'll also find a lack of real engagement with the cross of Christ. You will see more emphasis on, Lord, I want to see your glory. Lord, I want to see your glory. But the cross is left out of that equation way too often. And I, I firmly believe um, with Martin Luther that, the, that the, uh, the glory of God is seen most clearly in Christ crucified, right? I, I mean, it's, it's in Second uh, Corinthians where Paul talks about how we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we gaze upon Christ. But if you remember, what is it that Paul said to the Corinthians, the heart of his message to them? I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. The, the glory that transforms us is seeing Christ and him crucified. Luther you know, had, had a big, big kind of tirade about this. He had tirades about lots of things, but he had a very helpful tirade about this. He talked about the theologians of glory versus the theologians of the cross. The theologians of glory who want to spy out God and his nakedness. They want to consider what God is like by understanding his attributes in a philosophical way, disconnected from the revelation of God in Christ crucified. So, and I find my students all the time have this problem. They're thinking about the sovereignty of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, just as a philosophical abstraction, and they're getting into all kinds of knots and doubts, but, but it, they have to think about Christ and Him crucified. The way you deal with the problem of evil in our world is not to offer a nice philosophical um, description and resolution of all the problems. No, you have to point people at the cross. And, and at, at a Christ who says... On the cross, who asks why? Right? Um, so important that we do that. I think the hymns help us do that. The cross is the way we see God's face, and it is the fullest expression of his glory. The way to understand the mercy of God is to look at Jesus and him crucified. The best way to understand the patience of God, the strength of God, the justice of God, the anger of God, is Christ and him crucified. Read Luther about that. And we need deeper and richer and longer looks at the cross and all that it means. Luther advised, for every one look you take at your sin, take ten looks at the cross. But we rarely look at our sin, don't we? Perhaps I think it's because we don't look at the cross enough and we don't have, we don't have the courage, do you? I, I mean, I, I wrestle with that. If, if I really examine what's going on in my heart, how can David pray, Lord, show me my secret faults? Um, how can he have the courage to do that? because he understands the reality of, of forgiveness in the gospel. Christians should be able to repent more deeply than anybody because we know that we will never discover in our hearts sin that's not already been paid for and forgiven. What do we have to be afraid of? 
I need that reminder all the time. Therefore, it's important to me that I'm singing songs that are bathing me in the gospel, bathing me in the shed blood of Christ, the reality of that. Because like I talked about yesterday, that's the, that's the heart of assurance. It was the promises of God made and kept in Jesus who became sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God. That's my hope. And I need that to, to be reminded of that all the time. Um, hymns, uh, you know, are, help us take these longer looks at the cross because they often are about meditation. I, I really do. Remember I said um, in college I discovered this place where A.W. Tozer said the best devotional book next to the Bible is a good hymnal. It took me 15 or 20 years to discover he was right. Um, and, and I think that when I talk with my students, I find they don't know how to read the Bible. Maybe they've, you know, grown up in youth groups where they've had little fill-in-the-blank books. But nobody's really taught them how to read the Bible and pray. But generally, they, they understand reading the Bible is trying to kind of spit out the answers to fill in the blanks on these little booklets, which they become sort of dependent upon for the rest of their life. Or, and prayer is about kind of keeping a laundry list of things that we want and praying to God. But they don't understand how to bring those things together at all. Um, and I think it's really meditation that helps us do that. Um, George Whitfield talked about how the first year after he got converted, he basically prayed through the entire Bible. He opened up Matthew Henry's commentary and the Bible, and he prayed through every verse of the Bible on his knees. And he said that's what gave him food for sermons that he preached the rest of his life. Robert Murray McShane, who one of my great heroes, um, talks about this, praying the scriptures, turning the, your Bible reading into a, a way to dialogue with God and to wrestle with God through prayer. We need more of that. People do not know how to meditate. They don't understand how to wrestle with God through the word that he's revealed and through prayer. And I think the hymns can help us with that. Uh, I said this yesterday. Tim, Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, says that meditation is thinking a truth in and then thinking it out. It's, it's not emptying your mind. Uh, the way, you know, Christians actually tell themselves the truth to feel better. Um, a lot of people sort of lie to themselves to feel better. Christians should be telling themselves the truth to feel better. Like uh, we heard in the, in the sermon in chapel, it's preaching the gospel to ourselves. Uh, that hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, a great example of that. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. How can, how can, you, how can you not respond to this soul? You know, my soul. Why are you downcast, my soul, David says. Um, so the hymns can help us do this because they take a theme and they look at it from different angles. They help, you know, meditation, again, is thinking a truth in and then thinking it out. How is this truth important when I'm in a trial? How is this truth important when I'm on my deathbed? Right? Like it is well with my soul. Good example. You know, it, you know talking about it's well now, but on judgment day, when that trump, you know, will sound, I'll need this truth then and here's how it'll function. That's what, that's what we need to be doing. What, how is this truth going to function in your relationships? How does it need to function right now in your relationships? How does this truth need to function in your tithing or in the, what you do with your money or in uh, who you vote for? All these sorts of things. We need to learn how to connect the dots. And I found the hymns really helpful in doing that because they kind of take us by the hand and say, here, let me sh- give you a little sample of how you take a truth and you connect the dots to all these different um, areas. Help us do that. And it's not coincidence that does that, because so many of the hymns you'll find really are born out of meditation. Uh, John Newton's a great example here, because we have some of the sermon notes that go along with the hymns that he introduced on that particular day. So we have the sermon notes from the sermon he preached the day that he introduced how sweet the name Jesus sounds um, to his people. And it's from a verse in Song of Solomon 
which says, Thy name is like ointment, O Lord. He preaches on that, on that verse. I don't know when the last time you did your, your quiet time on that verse. But what Newton gets out of that is how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes, what is it? It soothes his sorrows, heals his, fear, heals his wounds, and drives away my fears, right? This is amazing. He connects thy name, O Lord, to Jesus in a great, rich, biblical, theological um, way and, and then begins to, to talk about how that practically applies in, in a believer's you know, struggles. Um, rich meditation on Song of Solomon 1.3. At one point, you know, Newton got to where he would, you know, he would sort of have a hymn that would go along with his sermon. At, at some point in this kind of Sunday night meeting that he was doing, he began to preach his hymns. He would take his passage, he would turn it into a hymn, and then he would preach the hymn stanzas, which is, you know, really, really interesting. He found that it stuck with the poor lace workers and only better than the scripture. I think that's really fascinating to think about. Um, another good one is um, Amazing Grace, which is a New Year's Day hymn. He introduced it on New Year's Day and he preached from the Davidic covenant. You remember the story where David says to God, I want to build you a house. Why should I be living in a palace when God is in a tent? And he says to Nathan, this is what I want to do. And Nathan says, go for it. That's great. Then God speaks to Nathan that night in a dream and says, that's not what I want. I'm content to be a vagabond God, to go around in a tent until my people are settled. I want to establish your house before I'll let you build me a house. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel that God puts his people first, even above his own comfort? You can meditate on that for a while, right? Uh, and, and, and Newton responds to that with amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And the, actually, the, you know, the, when we've been there 10,000 years, that's not an original verse. That's not Newton's verse. That was added later. When you read his verses, you clearly see that he's talking about God has met me this far. As I reflect on my life the past year, New Year's Day in, um, was a, an important time for Newton where you would reflect on the past year and what God had done. And you would, based on his faithfulness to you in the past, look forward to his faithfulness in the future. And that hymn brings that out the way the original verses are structured worth worth looking at sometime um but i'll say this hymns are not perfect (laughs) beware of worshiping hymns in the hymn tradition um if hymns are helpful it's because the gospel comes to us through them certainly and there are a lot of horrible hymns out there um there are some horrible hymns by by almost every great hymn writer you can find real dogs uh of hymns that they've written and some of them hymnologists love to to bring out, probably Esther, probably, you probably bring out some of them in your classes. Um, some of the ones that Watts wrote, you know, um, to scare little children out of hell. I mean, just amazing. There's some that Wesley wrote anti-Calvinist hymns, and there's some that Top Lady wrote anti-Arminian hymns that are just dreadful. Most of those, you see, have dropped out of use. And so when you're looking at the hymn tradition, a lot of what you have is it's been sifted through over time. Um, that's one advantage that we have to sort of, you know, if you're a worship director or a pastor in a church and you're having to sift through all of this new material that's coming, it's difficult. With the hymn tradition, you have a little bit of help. Some of the really bad stuff's been thrown out. Unfortunately, some of the good stuff has been thrown out, too, because there have been times where certain expressions weren't considered very helpful, like suffering and doubt. And so Ann Steele's hymns disappear. Now, now that's more back in vogue. And so we, we go, well, we don't have any hymns. Hymns don't talk about suffering and doubt. They just pretend that everything's fine. I hate hymns. Well, no, you hate the hymns that have survived the purging. But there's a lot of other great hymns if you go back and, and search out. And I'll tell you, you know, I read through Gatsby's hymns and Spurgeon's hymns. There's all kinds of horrible hymns that, that we skip over. Some of them are just really difficult language, archaic language, hard to read. Some of them just don't say things very well. But 
in the thousands and thousands of hymn texts that are out there, there's some great ones. And I found that it's, it's, uh, it's worth digging and mining and looking for those and encourage that practice to you as well. Thought or question, and then I want to make a few more comments about maybe some practical suggestions on how to nurture a hymn movement in your own church. But on, on, on sort of my points about hymns and why they're helpful, any, any, any other thoughts or questions about that? Okay, questions about music and people, even younger people liking older texts, but not necessarily liking older music. Um, and then how do I you know, decide when we should put a new tune to something? Uh, to tell you the truth, a lot of the hymns that we've done, I didn't know that they were still being used and that there were tunes that people were fond of. Um, I've come to discover that. But my experience with hymns was pretty limited. And I came to this through old books, old hymnals that I had that I was just reading and finding these hymn texts that I'd never heard before and had never heard sung, and they weren't in the hymnal we had at our church. So I didn't have a, a tune with them. I remember sending our first CD to Mark Knoll to try to interest him in coming and speaking at a conference. And he, he had this great response. He said, I really appreciate what you're doing, but I have to tell you, you took all of my favorite hymn texts and changed the tunes. And I don't really like the CD, but I like what you're doing. I want to encourage you in what you're doing, but you just picked all my favorites. But, you know, I didn't know anybody that knew A Debtor to Mercy Alone or Approach My Soul. I didn't know people that sang those anymore. Um, so, you know, we probably stepped on some toes um, unnecessarily. I will say, though, that even some tunes that are favorite, well-loved tunes, sometimes it is helpful to sing a fresh tune, to, 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 to change a tune, just to bring some variety and help people. I, I think, for instance, a text has more emotional nuances than any one piece of music can bring out. And so I think there, there can be a use of a different tune to maybe bring out a different... I think Rock of Ages is a good example. You know, there's a traditional tune that's very strong, stately, but then James Ward's tune is more intimate and tender. And I think both of those images are there in that text. And I, and I think neither piece of music brings out all of what's there. So it, it is subjective. Of course it's subjective, um, but it's not purely subjective. I mean, there are things I think about. Um, part of it is my instrumentation, you know, is limited in an RUF meeting. We generally have guitars. I can't get piano players to bring their piano to the meeting. I generally can't get drummers to bring anything more than a djembe. So, um, you know, what's going to work with our instrumentation? Um, there are some tunes that really, unless you have the right instrumentation, it's not going to work so well. And a lot of the modern worship is that way. If you don't, it's, we were talking about this. There, there's some tunes that the melody is really what makes the tune. There's some that it's the groove. And those, some of those are harder to do with a stripped-down instrumentation. Um, so that, that's a factor I think about. Um, and I, I also, my sense is the tunes that are traditional tunes that arose out of folk music tend to translate across the generations better. I find the tunes that we use, like Come Thou Found, Amazing Grace, Be Thou My Vision, Ferris Lord Jesus, a lot of those have their roots in more folk music traditions. Um, you know, like in, in, in our PCA hymnal, we, we have PCA hymnal, we have tunes by, um, you know, just really Victorian. They sound very dated because um, they really sort of are, are captured in one particular kind of stylistic period. Those, to me, don't, don't translate as well. But there are, you know folk tunes that are hundreds of years old that still sound very fresh and contemporary. So that's why I'm really interested lately in sacred heart music and in um, a lot of the old Library of Congress recordings Alan Lomax did and searching out some of those. And I'd love to try and use some of those tunes and try to adapt them um, as well. That's kind of my latest thing I'm interested in. And George Pullen Jackson researching some of that stuff. If you don't know any about that, you can ask Esther and she'll tell you about that stuff too. Good. Let me say something about nurturing a hymn movement before we run out of 
out of time, and then maybe we'll have some questions. I, I certainly, you've got to understand, my context is I've never been a worship director at a church. So I, I can ask some of these questions, but I don't have to wrestle with, okay, some of the pragmatic things that you have to wrestle with when you're, I think the fact that I'm working with college students had a lot to do with this movement coming about. Because, you know, you, you basically can try things more easily, new things, with college students than you can at most churches, right? And so college students, they, they, weren't, they didn't really have a context tradition with the hymns, most of them. I mean, I minister to college students who have never sang hymns in their churches. Do you realize that? We have those, those, the, a whole generation of those people. And so for them, like they, they, they you know, like this kind of music, they've never heard these texts at all. And so, you know, what, what I was trying to say is people who have bought into this sort of musical style but have left all of these hymn texts behind, maybe how, how can we help them approach this? There are some churches that do lots of hymns. I'm not saying you need to get rid of all of your, you know, more traditional musical style and um, to be relevant. I remember one time we were interviewed in a newspaper article and the title was, you know, new hymn tunes make hymns relevant. I would never say that. I, I don't think that that's, that's true. I, I think there's a place for recovering some of these old hymn texts and setting them to new music. Um, some of them I'll use to traditional tunes um, if, if they seem to work. But, um, you know, basically a couple points I would say that I think w- could be helpful in, in helping get maybe some of your people in, involved in this idea. I do think, you know, it's helpful for them to hear some of the CDs, not, not just ours. I think Red Mountain Church down in Birmingham has done some excellent Work. I think there's a church in Brooklyn, Park Slope Presbyterian Church, has an excellent CD, Sandra McCracken and Matthew Smith, part of the Indelible Grace community, have each done solo CDs. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, we, so I, I think letting people hear those things. It's interesting to me now, in our RUF group, I can, I can basically introduce a song off of our first CD with you know, half the room being freshmen who have never been to our RUF meeting before and know that they're going to know the tunes. I think it's really interesting to think about how you introduce tunes to your church in the future. Think about putting the songs on a website so that people can be listening to it all during the week before you get to church. You know, we've always sort of had this idea, well, you've got to do it as special music, and then you've got to, you know, then maybe the next week you can sing it together. Now, you can, you can use, there's lots of different ways, I think, the future. You can put it on a podcast, you know, make a regular podcast of the music that we're going to do uh, this week at church. One of my friends, um, he will list in the bulletin the, the hymns that they're going to sing the next week, and he'll often have sort of family devotional kind of guide questions so that the families can be talking about the hymns and what they mean with their children all during the week. I, I think all that stuff's really, really great. So I say sing more hymns and tell more stories about the hymns, not just in church services, but get together and have hymn sings. Um, talk about why we sing the hymns we do. I, again, I think we often do things we don't tell people why we're doing. We do this in worship. You go to plan the service around a particular theme based on the sermon, a lot of times in our free church tradition, uh, but then we never tell people what the theme is. And then the sermon happens, and, and there were all these wonderful connections we worked hard at and thought about, but we never helped people connect the dots. Um, so we need to talk about why we're doing what we're doing more often. Tim Keller up in New York uses the phrase, you need to exegete the worship service for people, not just exegeting the text. Help them understand why we're doing what we're doing. Um, use the hymns and stories of the hymns in your pastoral counseling, in your preaching. I, fi- I find that really helpful. I know... Um, a guy I know who's a counselor and a counseling professor up at Westminster Seminary says that sometimes he'll give our CDs to patients that he's working with who just need to bathe in the gospel. And say, so you just need to listen to this. You just need to put this in your car and listen to this. 
um, because you're forgetting the gospel all the time and it's leading to these results in your life. I I think that's helpful. I sometimes will give our our CDs. I like being an independent producer of CDs because I can give them away and I don't have to buy them from anybody. I just give them away. Here, you need this. Listen to this. You need this text. Let me give you this. Meditate on it. I'll, I'll Xerox off pages from the hymn book and give it to people to to help them think about and to use in their own personal prayer times. Um, Make the uh, the use of some of these reprinted hymnals, make them available to your people. If you have, you know, a book table, have these things around. Encourage not just musicians, but other people to to read through Gatsby's hymns or Spurgeon's hymn book or um, Elizabeth Prentice. Um, You can get a, a book of her hymns has been reprinted. All kinds of things. Um, I list, you know, on that little paper, some some other books and resources, so I won't take too much time now doing that. Um, But, you know, most local Christian bookstores don't carry this stuff. You have to search for it. Now, you have a wonderful bookstore here. Uh, I always love coming up to Southern and browsing the bookstore, especially in the worship and hymnal section, because you just don't have that at your typical Christian bookstore. Um, fortunately, with the Internet, you can find some of this good stuff. But I think it's helpful if you make some of that available, either through a church bookstore or a book table, so that people will start looking at some of this stuff and becoming interested in it. Um, try to give a vision to your musicians to use some of their talent to serve the church by writing hymns and hymn tunes. Uh, when I meet a singer-songwriter, I, I do try to give them a hymnal and say, here, use this. And if something inspires you, then set it to music. Because I know if they're going to put a text to a tune... They're going to write a new tune for a text. They're going to have to get inside of that text. And this is the way I, I mean, the way I do it. Other people may do it other ways. But I really read the text over and over and over again and try to just emote with it. How does this make me feel? I actually think that's a good thing to do with the Bible, reading the Bible as well. Just reading it and saying, oh, that hurts. or Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, I want that. You know, we don't do that very much. We don't connect emotionally with the text. We don't connect emotionally with hymns, but we, we should help ourselves do that. And then I begin to just try to sing a melody. Usually the tune, hymn tunes I've done that have worked best are the ones that I did not write as a guitar riff, but wrote first as a melody with no instrument in my hand, because this really is music to be sung. And, and most people will engage that text not by playing it, but by singing it. And so, you know, to me, I can, I can tell the difference between a, a tune like Sometimes a Light Surprises, which started as a, as a guitar riff, and Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul, which has 6-4 bar in the middle of these 4-4 bars, because it just seemed like there needed to be a pause there. You know, and if, I was, if I had a pre-existing guitar strum, I'm sure that wouldn't have happened. Um, but it seemed to me to fit Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul. <sighs> On the, you know, my sorrow, you know, uh, uh, that's just the way I approach it. And try to, you know, if you, if people do write this music, try to have an opportunity where you can, they can perform it or do it for people. That may mean sometimes that you're going to do songs that may not be excellent all the time. But I think there's, there's something to be gained by letting sort of the creative gifts in your congregation be used. Um, they may not last. There's a lot of songs we've even put on our CDs that I wish would disappear because um, I, I, don't, I don't really like them anymore. Um, and then as soon as I think that, then some church will tell me, man, this is the one and double grace hymn that we do and it's our favorite hymn. Like, Okay, we, ne- we don't do that. We never did it, and we probably never will. But I'm glad that it's helped and that you've enjoyed it. Um, it's okay. I-, I always tell people, you- what you need to help musicians understand is that they are way too perfectionistic for their own good. And a lot of them will not write songs because they don't want to write a bad song. And people just have to write a lot of bad songs before they start writing good ones, generally. And most, you know, most hymn writers are known for one or two hymns. Most hymn tune writers are known for one or two tunes. If you can do one tune that will serve the body of Christ, that's wonderful. 
What a great gift. Don't think that you have to write 50 excellent tunes and you can't show them to anybody unless you're sure that they're perfect and the greatest thing that ever happened. Just, just be free. And I'll say this because I'm from the north and I'm not very good at being sensitive. I've had to learn to be very gentle in my critiques. When people present things to me, which they do less and less because I'm not um, for critique, you know, I've learned I probably shouldn't do it through email. It's too flat a medium. Um, I probably need to do it face to face. And I need to think of a lot of encouraging things to say before I can offer a critique. And I need to stick to what I know. I'm not a poet. You know, I know theology better than I know poetry. So so I may be able to comment on. I don't think that's true. Um, But sometimes I say, I don't know if that's the most creative word to use there, but I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe you could think of a different word, but I try to be gentle. Um, musicians tend to have pretty fragile egos sometimes. So you have to, you have to recognize that. Um, and encourage your writers to be part of the growing movement through the Internet. There's a, I would definitely encourage you to have your writers be part of our discussion forum that we have on igracemusic.com. And I listed another one as well, the liturgyfellowship.org. Um, I really want to see this movement grow. And I, I imagine that there will be people in your churches that you will come into contact with that the Lord could use to help serve the growing body um, and, and add to the body and serve the, the larger church. So that's all I've got to say. Thanks. Yeah.